0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Catherine Epstein on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Model Nazi, Arthur Greiser, and the Occupation of Western Poland. Unlike some of my colleagues, I find the term totalitarian somewhat useful because I believe it aptly describes the intentions or aspirations of modern regimes like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union under Stalin. But I'm aware, of course, that the term can be misleading. Misleading because it implies somehow that totalitarian aspirations were realized. But anyone who has read Catherine Epstein's excellent book would know that this really isn't the case. Arthur Greiser wanted to be a model Nazi, as she points out. And he was a good Nazi. He believed in the cause, and he wanted to remake Germany and all of Europe. But his attempts to effect this plan were stymied at many, many points. His own personality got in the way. He uh, was something of a romantic, and he had trouble with his, his wife and, and mistress, and he had affairs, and he later divorced and remarried. And all of this jeopardized his career and his program. And then, of course, there was the Nazi bureaucracy or administration itself, which was extraordinarily chaotic, as Catherine points out in the book. The Warthegau, which was the area of Western Poland that Greiser controlled, was caught in a kind of tangle of jurisdictions. And so Greiser uh, had to kind of fight his way through all of these conflicting and cross-cutting lines of interest in order to get done what he thought the Fuhrer wanted done. And it was a very difficult thing. He did not succeed, thank goodness, in making the Warthagau a model Nazi province. But it wasn't for want of trying. Uh, He failed, and the Nazi totalitarian project failed. And we should thank Catherine for pointing out the ways in which such projects often, again, thankfully, run aground. I really enjoyed talking to Catherine today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Catherine.
1: Hi, Marshall. How are you?
0: I'm very well. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, Today we're talking with Catherine Epstein about her terrific new book, Model Nazi, Arthur Greiser and the Occupation of uh, Western Poland. This is a really fantastic book and I highly recommend you read it, not just if you're interested in um, uh, sort of the history of the the Nazi movement and of the Nazi occupation of the Eastern territories, but uh, as I say a little bit in the write-up to the interview, it's also a kind of a interesting window on what totalitarianism is and in this case isn't because uh, as Catherine points out in the book Greiser was a, he wanted to be a totalitarian but he was sort of frustrated at every turn by the system that was in place, if we can call it that, in the Eastern territories. Also his personal life gets in the way in a very in a very curious uh, sense and and um, it, it really uh, her treatment really sheds a lot of light on, on what it means to try to affect a totalitarian pro- program and how it's really not entirely possible, uh, given the 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 bills that humans are um, characterized by. So Catherine's written a terrific book, and I I think we're all going to enjoy listening to her talk about it today. Uh, Catherine, maybe you could begin the interview by just saying a few words about yourself.
1: So, Let's see. I guess I'm the daughter and granddaughter of refugee historians. Both my grandfather and my father were historians of Germany. Hmm. I think I really became a historian of Germany as a part of a failure of imagination. It was sort of a <laughs> family business. And so that's how, um, you know, I sort of got interested in history. Um, My grandparents were unusual in that they remigrated back to Germany, and so we went and visited my grandparents every second summer in Germany. So I was in Germany frequently Uh um, as a child and as an adolescent. Um, eventually, I went to Brown. At the very last moment, I became a history major. I was trying to stay away from the family tradition, but it wasn't mm-hmm. so easy to do. Then right. I thought I'd be really different and become a historian of Russia. Oh. But the problem with that was that I'd have to drink vodka till four in the morning yes. in order to get anything out of archivists or yeah, right. oral histories or anything like that. So I thought that's not really me. And in the end, I ended up in German history. Uh-huh. Um, I did. I went. I worked at the German Historical Institute between um, when was that in the 1990s, and I actually did a book or a, um, a sort of catalog on refugee historians. Mm-hmm. After that, I went to Harvard and I got my PhD at Harvard. I wrote my dissertation with Charlie Mayer, mm-hmm. and uh, my first book was on, or sort of first real book was on East Germany um, and the um, longtime communists who ended up ruling East Germany. This was right when the Berlin Wall had opened, when the archives were just starting to open up for East Germany, and so I was really psyched to um, sort of get in there and write Mm -hmm. this book on East Germany. Uh, The problem with East Germany is that in the end, other than the book that I wrote, I found a lot of the archives really boring, and so I couldn't possibly imagine writing another book on East Germany. So that's when I started to sort of look around and think about another kind of topic. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, this was now in the early 2000s, um, I was reading various books and thinking a lot about East Central Europe, and everyone was thinking about ethnic tensions and ethnic cleansing, and I decided, well, since I'm not going to work on East Germany, I should think about something else to do. So what I then did was I thought, wow, well, think about Polish-German ethnic cleansing, and there have been all these waves of Polish-German ethnic cleansing. And I realized I don't know Polish. But I live in Amherst, which is in western Massachusetts, where there's a pretty strong Polish minority, largely in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And remarkably, Polish is taught at the University of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So in one of these years um, of teaching, I basically... Organized my teaching schedule around the teaching schedule of the person teaching first-year Polish at UMass, and I went religiously to his class every morning and um, you know learned Polish enough to be able to kind of work through documents. Mm-hmm. So that then made the project um, possible. One day I was reading actually Norman Naumark's book on ethnic cleansing in the 20th century, and I realized that I could do a project that would study. Um, different waves of ethnic cleansing between Germany and Poland between 1880 and 1950 if I focused on this region of Posen or Poznan. So I wrote all the grant recommendations, uh, grant um, applications, and everything like that, and um, was all set to do a history of the escalation of ethnic cleansing between Germans and Poles then what happened was i got the grants i went to germany got into the archives and i realized actually each of the actual waves of ethnic cleansing had been fairly well studied so my work would simply become a sort of synthesis of all those waves but then i came across this character arthur greiser and i realized that his life spanned all of the sort of four waves of ethnic cleansing that took place in that region and i realized that almost nothing had been done on And then slowly but surely, I realized that there was quite a bit of documentation available on him. Um, So I spent a sabbatical in Berlin. Um, I went to um, archives in Poland. Usually I had two kids at that time, so usually I'd leave Monday morning really early to go to Poznan, and I'd spend all week in the archives. I'd come back Friday evening to Berlin and um, did a lot of archival research in that way. At that point, I had not yet connected to any family members, and I didn't know actually how to get hold of any fa- family members because Greiser is a fairly common name. And I also knew that the Greiser survivors were women, his daughters were women, and I presumed that they had married names. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what to do about finding Greiser family members. But I kept out at, at the archives. I found lots of other interesting material and um, that all worked very well, and I was all set to write this biography, and I came home to the United States, and I started writing this biography. And then the most amazing thing happened, which was that one morning um, an email showed up in my box, and the person who'd sent it was Catherine Greiser. Oh. What that meant was that the family had found me. Uh-huh. So Catherine Greiser is interesting. She is um, Arthur Greiser's grandniece. She herself is a historian. She published a book on the Buchenwald death marches, Uh and um, she was sort of interested in: is anyone writing on my great uncle? Is this a book I need to write? Um, And she'd come across my name because of Amherst College. Had some, I teach at Amherst College, and I'd gotten some grant through Amherst College, so that was all on the website. So she found me. Uh And what was remarkable was that she put me in touch with sort of every living relative that she could find. mm -hmm. And that was just um, a boon because there's parts of Arthur Greiser's early life that I just couldn't fill in in any way other than talking to family members. So I've since talked to Greiser's daughter twice, um, two very long days of conversation. I've talked to his niece. Um, Through other means, I found other people who had um, worked closely with Greiser, his cousin um, was his um, sort of personal advisor most of the period that he was in the Vatigao. And then um, his adjutant in the last days of his time in the Vatigao is also still alive. Mm-hmm. So I got to talk to all those people, and that really helps to sort of yeah. fill out who this person is, who Greiser is. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. Yeah, that's remarkable that you actually got to talk to his relatives. That's a, that's a great blessing. Well,
1: so you know. lucky that they got in touch with me, I and mean, that's just amazing.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so uh, why don't we actually begin talking about uh, Greiser himself? Maybe we can begin at the beginning. He, uh, not to give too much away, but he is, as Hitler once called him, a child of the East. What does the East mean in Germany in that era? And who, oh, Where was he born and who was he? Okay.
1: Yeah. So Greiser is a child of the East. He was born in, and actually that word is sort of Hitler's word also, yeah. um, child of the East. But Greiser was born in what was then the um, Prussian province of Posen, and it obviously belonged to Prussia. He was born outside of Posen. Um, his father was a civil servant and he grew up in this area. You know, he had every intention of this being his homeland. That's where he grew up. That's where his family was. Um, and then World War I hit and Greiser never liked school. Um, so he was happy to volunteer. He later lied about how early he volunteered because he goes and starts really rewriting his biography. And it's one of the themes of the book is that Greiser is constantly trying to show um, that his biography is more Nazi or more heroic than it really was. So he did volunteer in the fall of 1914, but not right on August 4th, um, 1914, as he later said. Um, and then he spent the entire... First World War um, on the Western Front, he was actually in the Navy, but he um, eventually became trained as a pilot. So um, one thing that's remarkable is that Greiser wrote letters home every three or four days, I think, back to his parents in in Posen. and all those or many of those letters have been preserved. They're in the Warsaw Archives. So it's really unusual to get to read letters that uh, you know future Nazi perpetrator is writing during. Um, the First World War. And I think it really sort of helps to shape, um, help me to sort of understand who he was. He wasn't a born Nazi. He was someone who in many ways was utterly typical of his generation. He, um, frankly, I think he would have been a nice guy to have met. He Uh was pretty jovial, pretty happy, um, a pretty nice guy. Um, You know, he was Always very concerned about his clothes, which I think is sort of interesting, Um, but that may betray his sort of lower middle class background and sort of trying to rise up. Um, But anyhow, so very good portrait of him, I think, during the First World War emerges from my book largely because the sources are there. One of the things that really comes out is that while Greiser was in constant danger all the time, um, and so I don't want to detract from his sort of war record, he really – You know, was one of these people who fought from the beginning to the end. But at a certain point, he underwent combat um, pilot, pilot combat training. And it appears that he was not as successful a combat pilot as, again, he later claimed to be. And, in fact, that he had something of a nervous breakdown um, in uh, the summer of 1917 as he was sort of being trained. Um, And this is interesting, too, because later Greiser would do everything he could to sort of um, squash any ideas that he had not been a heroic pilot and everything like that. Yeah. But I can tell from these letters that, you know, he does have this sort of nervous breakdown. And what that goes to is to it sort of points to the insecurities that Greiser has. And these insecurities, I argue, shape a lot of how he acts as a Nazi and the kinds of policies that he introduces. Uh-huh. So to make a long story short, at the end of World War One. He does fly at least one combat um, pilot mission, but he is shot down um, You know, pretty much immediately. He then ends up in a hospital in Germany. Part of the time, he's actually nursed back to health by his sister, Kata. And um, at the end of World War One, he's basically in a hospital. And meanwhile, all these things are happening in Posen. Um, there's a Polish uprising, and sort of by the end of 1918, Greiser has, um, at least in, in practice, lost his homeland. So he moves to Danzig, which is where he um, has relatives, and so there's some family connections there. Greiser had also had his pilot training in Danzig, and he'd fallen in love with a woman who became his first wife. And they got married um, very, very young in, in 1919. So Greiser, you know, by 1919, is writes home to his parents that he's now going to stay in Danzig, it's going to become a free city, but he um, thinks that the future will be okay there. And it's then, during this decade of the 1920s, that he becomes a Nazi. But a lot of the argument of my book is that it's not obvious that he's going to become a Nazi. Um, basically... Uh, Let's see. Basically, he actually has a very successful business and he does very well for much of the 1920s until sort of 1928, 1929. Once the Great Depression hits, Greiser loses his business. He was involved in an import-export firm. And um, because he now doesn't have much to do, he goes along with a friend to a Nazi party meeting and apparently he gets hooked. But the point is, during these 1920s, he was into playing tennis. He was part of a sort of bourgeois tennis club. He um, was a Freemason, very unusual for a later fairly Mm high-ranking Nazi to be a Freemason. The Nazis hated it. Hitler hated Freemasons. Um, So he has all these experiences that um, do not obviously lend themselves to becoming a Nazi. Uh But, of course, in 1929, Greiser joins the Nazi Party, um, he does so very late, and that also becomes a problem for him, um, largely because he's not sort of part of Hitler's inner circle. He hadn't been in the beer hall putsch. He wasn't one of Hitler's favorites. And this, too, becomes sort of another problem in his biography that he has to live down over the next um, period of time. Uh-huh. So he's, you know, 1929. He joins the Nazi party. He, um, Because the Nazis in Dunzig are so inept, he um, very quickly becomes an important Nazi.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, however, in 1930, uh, the um, Nazis decide that they also want to sort of build up the party in the free city of Danzig. And so Hitler sends along. Um, a man named Albert Foster, who happens to be one of Hitler's real favorites, to run the Nazi party in Danzig. And this is a huge blow for Greiser because now he has to play second fiddle in Danzig. And he's going to play second fiddle all during the 1930s. Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, I see. I just want to go back for a second to his war record just to make one thing kind of clear. And he, he, he did have a distinguished war record, though. So it's kind of surprising that he doctored it later. I mean, he won the uh, Iron Cross first class.
1: He did, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't give those
0: things away, I think. I,
1: right. No, yeah. I think that's true, although there was an escalation of them yeah, in sure. World War I. But yeah. it's true. And that's, that's the problem. You know, he did in many ways have a heroic war past, and he um, there's just, but just no question that he hadn't been in danger for many, many years. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, he has this sort of episode yeah. at the end of the war that really um, plays an important role in his later life.
0: Yeah. I just find it curious that somebody with a war record like that would feel they needed to sort of gin it up. But... I'm not well, a politician. You have a nervous
1: breakdown, <laughs> yeah. and you know whatever. It's not, it's not looking good, especially if you want to, you know, prop yourself up as a real Nazi. Yeah. It's not so good. What, what did he now,
0: now? Since he becomes uh, involved in what we might term Polish affairs, what, what did he, what did he know about Poles? He grew up among Poles, I guess. Did he speak Polish? Did he respect? Poles? Did he have Polish friends? I mean, what were relations like uh, in uh, this region, Hohenzollern, and so on and so forth? Uh, when he was uh, sort of growing up and then when he re- returned?
1: So when, um, you know, the in that Prussian province of Posen, there were roughly one-third Germans and two-thirds Poles. And in the period that Greiser was growing up, you have, you know, lots and lots of national polarization. It appears that the Greiser family was um, not necessarily militantly anti-Polish. It appears that Greiser did know some Polish from playing with Polish kids but it also is clear that by the end of that period, by sort of you know, nineteen twelve, nineteen thirteen, nineteen fourteen, his father had become a fairly important official within um the what's it of the H T K, this um, you know, fairly right wing or very mm-hmm. right wing German organization that was um, very much geared towards um, German dominance of this pole of what well what they consider a German region, but where there were a lot of Poles. And so they really wanted to Germanize this region for once and for all. And it seems like the Greiser family was caught up a little bit in that, at least. There's a lot of dispute about how anti-Polish Greiser was during um, his school years. Polish commentators writing right about the time of Greiser's trial in 1946, they insisted that Greiser was militantly anti-Polish already then. But some people who testified at the trial who were themselves Poles thought that um, Greiser was actually you know he was polite he was not um, not so anti-polish necessarily Um, so my view is that Greiser became much more anti-polish over the course of the 1920s when he's living in Danzig which is the city that has been decoupled from Germany the Poles are surrounding it Um, the Germans in Danzig are frustrated by the Poles they feel like the Poles have too much um, too much power to intervene in in the affairs of the free city there are various custom wars that go mm-hmm. on. And so I think that Greiser's anti-Polishness really develops out of losing the Poznan or Posen region and um, his experiences in the 1920s living in the free city, which w- which really was a hotbed of anti-Polish sentiment.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. What about any hint of anti-Semitism early in his life?
1: Um, that really is um, another argument of the book is that Greiser was much more anti-Polish than anti-Semitic. So we know that um, in his youth, that his parents were quite good friends with a Jewish merchant, and um, there are various signs that the Greiser family maintained relations with this Jewish, um, the Jewish father in particular. Um, at one point during World War One, Greiser mentions in a letter that he's going to meet with that Jewish merchant um, on one of his leaves, and for some reason the meeting doesn't take place. But what's interesting is um, Greiser doesn't seem to have. Anti-Semitic yeah. sentiments per huh. se. Yeah. Now, his sister, that woman Keita, who nursed him back to health in mm-hmm. part, she was dating in the early, you know, late teens, early 1920s. She was dating a man of Jewish origin who she ori- eventually married. So, Greiser's brother-in-law was Jewish or of Jewish origin. And interestingly, um, that family emigrated from Germany very early. Once the Nazis came to power, they emigrated already in December, uh-huh. I think, oh, of I 1933. See. Yeah. So not um, I would not call Greiser particularly anti-Semitic until that he's you know, really part of the Nazi movement, and that's just sort of part of what goes along with being a Nazi, is that you are also anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah, no, I it's see. not what motivated him to join the Nazis.
0: Right. So I think one thing that we need to explain by way of background is uh, the city of Danzig, or what is now Gdansk. Um, we should also tell our listeners that everything in this area of Eastern Europe has at least two names and sometimes three. <laughs> three, I'm, that's right. I'm reminded of Lvov or Lviv yeah. or Lemberg, and there are a couple of other ones for that city. Uh, and uh, we don't really know, yeah. It's, it's that's a,
1: complicated, yeah.
0: It's dangerous to say anything about that city. <laughs> I'm telling you what, I, you really have to know who you're talking to before yep. you name it. Uh, so so can you explain a little bit about the status and the history of Danzig?
1: Okay, so Danzig was long a German city, Um, however, at the end of World War I, the Poles were very eager to have access to the sea, and in order to get access to the sea, they felt that they needed, you know, the main port that was sort of stretching along um, the coast that they hoped would be Polish. However, in Versailles, the um, treaty makers recognized that the city really was ethnically sort of 95% German. So they were reluctant to hand the city over to the Poles. So the compromise was that um, Danzig would be decoupled from the Reich, from the German Empire, and would become a free city under League of Nations mandate. Meanwhile, the Poles got this famous Polish corridor that um, did mean that they actually had territory along the coast, um, what happened in the 1920s was that because the Poles viewed um, Danzig as too much of a German city, was that the Poles actually built an alternate port um, called Gdynia, where um, they you know, started sending all their shipping and all their goods through this now new Polish port that they built in order to avoid using the Danzig Harbor. That, in turn, really undermined the Danzig economy um, and, again, helped to sort of further these Polish-German tensions. Meanwhile, by the end of the um, interwar period, Gdynia was actually um, a much more uh, active port than than Danzig. And so the Poles were actually quite successful in sort of edging out the Germans in that Baltic trade. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. And so th- this, um, this kind of anomalous, administratively anomalous place, this is where Greiser makes his political career, at least the beginning of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so
1: I, go ahead. he is second in command, Um, In uh, the free city of Danzig, he – and in 1934, so for the period between 1930 and 1934, he's the second Nazi in command. He's very militant. He does everything he can to sort of Nazify the city and get people into the Nazi movement. In 1934, he actually becomes the chief executive of the city because the Danzig Nazis now control the free city – they um, are able to determine who's going to be the chief executive of the city. Now, Foster, the man who Greiser, sorry, the man who Hitler had sent to sort of be the Nazi chief, it was decided that he should not be also the chief executive of the city because it was viewed that that would be too much of an affront to the Western powers who were interested in maintaining the integrity of Danzig under the League of Nations mandate. So another Nazi had to fulfill that role and that man was Griser. Now because of this huge rivalry between Greiser and Foster that develops, um, it's already you know there as soon as Foster arrives in 1930, but it gets more and more pronounced over the next few years as Griser would really like to have more control and more power in the Free City and Foster obviously doesn't want him to have more power and more control. So you end up having this great rivalry, and what's interesting about the rivalry is that it also shapes Greiser's policies so that by the late 1930s, Greiser is thinking of ways to sort of profile himself to become, you know, sort of the man to go to in Dunsig. But he always has this problem in that Foster has his, um, has Hitler's ear, and Foster can always get Hitler to sort of side with him. Now, for Greiser, what that means is that he's looking for other allies. Um... And part of what he starts to do is sort of curry favor with the um, representative that the League of Nations sends to um, Danzig. That's the Swiss historian Carl Burkhardt. And um, in the late 1930s, Greiser actually advocates fairly moderate policies in comparison to Foster. This is also interesting because in the late 1930s, Greiser is not pushing to throw out the um, Jews from Danzig, whereas Foster really is. Now, in the end greiser lines up and does help push out the the Danzig jews but he tries to sort of moderate that for a few years Um, in the end though he also pushes out the Danzig jews and what's interesting is that um, at the time this was viewed as a huge scandal that the jews of Danzig were being forced out even before you know the nazis occupied poland or anything like that now of course you know, so Greiser's daughter views that as one of the positive things that Greiser did. He helped the Jews get out of Dumpzig. So it's very yeah. interesting how our yeah. perceptions of these things change. Uh-huh,
0: yeah. yeah, that is interesting. No, I also want to um, dwell for just a second, and you do in the book, and I think it's a uh, completely appropriate on, on on Greiser's personal life. He was kind of a bon vivant, and also he had a uh, um, uh, he, he was he's a bit he was a bit romantic. He uh, he got married and had kids, and then he had affairs, and then he fell in love again. And this sort of almost jeopardized his career. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Okay. So Greiser did have a very sort of dramatic love life, particularly in the 1930s. I mentioned earlier that he'd married this woman, Ruth. They had three children and early on their marriage seemed to be perfectly happy. However, as Greiser became an increasingly sort of important Nazi, he seemed to think that maybe Ruth wasn't interesting enough or pretty enough or dramatic enough or who knows what. So he did start having affairs. And then one day, in I believe December 1933, Ruth asked him to go to a piano concert. He went to this piano concert, and he totally fell in love with the (laughs) pianist, who was a woman named Maria. And Maria was apparently not in a particularly happy marriage to a Berlin veterinarian, and so they started to have a very hot and heavy romance. For my purposes, what's interesting about this romance is that Greiser left a trail of letters And so there are all these love letters, I think there's 34 of them, that he writes to Maria talking about his great love for her and how important she is for him. And to me, what's particularly interesting about these letters is that Greiser sort of couches his love for Maria within a sort of greater German nationalism. The uh-huh. reason why he needs Maria is because she will help him become a better and stronger politician working for Germany, working for the restoration of Germany. Yeah. So he sort of uses this nationalistic pathos to kind of woo her. But it also says something interesting about what Roger's become. You know, He has become this really sort of hyper-German nationalist who, you know, and he's got to fit his whole life into this sort of narrative. So it's very interesting to sort of see him Reformulating how he thinks about his relationships through now his new political views. Yeah. Um, so it's and, you know, and it's very nasty for the children. It's a yeah. very dramatic, nasty divorce. Um, in the end, Greiser gets what he wants. He divorces his first wife. He marries Maria. They never have any children, um, which is curious. I don't, I don't actually know why not. Um, but they and they don't always have a particularly happy relationship. But they do stay together until the end. And I believe Maria is still alive. Um, Oh, really? She died. She only died very, very recently. Um, I know of people who know of her, and it was made clear to me that she would not um, be interested in an interview with me. And there's, at some point, I don't want to interview a 100-year-old woman to talk about things she doesn't want to talk about. (laughs) That doesn't make much sense.
0: (laughs) No, I know that's amazing. She's still alive, though. But one of the things I really liked about the book is the way in which you showed how Greiser's personal choices mm, meshed or did not mesh with uh, Nazi politics uh, in general because we have some kind of odd things, things that kind of surprised me like his uh, wife, soon-to-be ex-wife, appealing to Himmler uh, about the, the marriage and doing so kind of on national socialist grounds. I mean, they looked askance at this, didn't they?
1: Yes, I mean, the Nazis believed in their top um, leaders or their middle-ranking leaders also as being, you know, they were supposed to be squeaky clean. They were supposed to be, you know good moral upstanding citizens and so the fact that Gorazer was cavorting with his pianist and then getting divorced and I should say he was doing all of this when there were very important elections ongoing in Danzig where actually it wasn't clear that the Nazis would win and this would have been a huge embarrassment for the Nazis if they had lost because it would have been the first place where the Nazis would have lost power so the Nazi Party was very unhappy with Greiser's um, antics at this point, but they didn't have anyone better to sort right. of, you know, be there. Uh-huh. No,
0: I see. I, I found that particularly interesting. And in that in that letter, which you quote uh, at length from um, his first wife to Himmler, is, is really quite moving. She was obviously devastated was by the entire guy. thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so uh, maybe a model Nazi, but not a model father. That's for certain.
1: Well, no, model father, yes, not a model husband. <laughs> okay.
0: You know, um, he was very
1: devoted to his right, children. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So um, th- then in a kind of a remarkable turn in the book, you know, it's, it's approaching 1939, and his career doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. And then suddenly within about six months, he's, uh, he's Gauleiter in
1: exactly. Poznan.
0: How does this happen?
1: So how does this happen? So in 1939, you know, Germany invades um, Poland. At that point, Greiser's career is totally on the rocks in Danzig because he's basically lost the rivalry with Foster. It's become quite clear that Foster is now going to take over and become head of the chief executive in the city of Danzig as well as the leading Nazi. And so it seems like there's no place for Greiser to go. So in a sense, the war for him was um, you know, a real liberation because now he could find something else to do. Um, so um, once the Nazis invaded Poland, they decided... Relatively soon, that they were going to annex the western parts of um, Poland, the areas that had been German prior to 1918, as well as um, a few more lands as well, that they were going to annex those to Nazi Germany and make them actually, you know, really part of the Third Reich um, in law. So um, they needed some leaders who could um, rule those areas. And here, Greiser's background proved very important because the fact that he'd grown up in this region made it attractive to have him then be the leader. As Hitler said, Greiser understood the sort of Polish problem. He understood, you know, what needed to be done in this region. And what needed to be done, as far as the Nazis were concerned, is that it was necessary to sort of Germanize the region, to make it look like Germany, and to eradicate all sorts of Polish influence, I believe Hitler told, um, uh, told individuals that he wanted this area to look German within 10 years, that it was supposed to be no trace that this was anything but um, Germany. So Greiser then set off on a very, very radical path in this area, at the Gau. So the reason why the book is called Model Nazi is because Greiser explicitly set out to establish a model Nazi Gau. And he wasn't the only one who wanted to do this, a bunch of people wanted to create model Nazi territories where they were, but Greiser was really eager to show that he could make an area a model Nazi area. And then my argument is that in the process of doing this he was also trying to forge himself into a model Nazi, Uh so the model Nazi would be um, in charge of the model Gal. So how does he do this? And um, in many ways I think the most important um, argument in my book is that what Greiser considered Germanization was a really overarching program. It was more important than just um, anti-Semitism. The idea was you needed to eradicate the Jewish influence, you needed to eradicate the Polish influence, and you needed to bring in German settlers into this region. Mm -hmm. So Germanization of the Wattigo involves a three-pronged sort of strategy, um, and Greiser did all three of them. And what's so remarkable is also the connections between, you know, the different aspects of this project. So to begin with, in order to begin, bring in ethnic Germans to this region, um, this was a set Nazi policy. And what the Nazis did was they decided that the Baltic Germans, Germans who were ethnic Germans who were somehow endangered by Bolshevism, that these individuals should be the first to come to Nazi Germany and to resettle these um, eastern areas of the Reich. So altogether, um, Greiser was very eager to get these um, resettlers. Altogether, about a half million resettlers came to the vatigal. Then the question became, where to put them? Yeah. And the issue there was, um, uh, well, the problem was you couldn't quite get rid of Jews in this way because Jews largely lived in tenement slums in, um, in Wuch, in the eastern, in this very large eastern city, but you may know it as Luch or uh-huh. um, It's written in different ways. It's another one of those cities with three different (laughs) names. (laughs) But anyhow, so um, the idea was let's get rid of Poles. Um, And so all the Poles who have nice apartments and um, nice houses, we have to get rid of them in order to make way for the German resettlers. That was true of the urban resettlers. And then the Nazis also brought in lots of ethnic German peasants. Um, from areas of eastern Poland. They signed agreements with the Soviets so that they could do this. And those um, ethnic German peasants needed Polish farms in order to um, live be resettled uh, successfully. So what you have in the early part of the um, occupation of the Wattigo is a movement whereby many Poles are displaced and ethnic German resettlers are brought in. At the same time, um, Greiser insisted on having that city, Wuch, in the Vatogao because it was such an important um, industrial area. He wanted to have more urban space than just Posen, Um, and so he got Wuch to become part of his Vatogao, but in the process he added um, many hundreds of thousands of Jews. So there were roughly, I think, 425,000 Jews in the Vatogao when Greiser got started, um, about 4.2 million Poles and about 325,000 Germans. Yeah. And so that was the problem for Greiser. He need to have a lot more Germans and a lot fewer Poles and Jews. So um, right away there's this process of deporting Poles. Then what happens with the Jews is really pretty interesting. So the Jews are ghettoized. Um, This is the first area where they are ghettoized. The first ghetto to be established in Nazi-occupied Europe is, in fact, that Wuch ghetto. It's already set up in April of 1940. And for the next few years, the um, Jews are in that ghetto. Very nasty um, conditions um, persist. However, in Wuch, also in that ghetto, there emerges a movement to sort of work. The idea is um, Chaim Rumkowski, who's the Jewish... um, leader of that ghetto comes up with this scheme of if we Jews work, then um, the Nazis will recognize how important we are and we will therefore be saved. And so the idea was sort of to work themselves so that they um, would, you know, so they would be allowed to live in order to work. So what then becomes interesting in terms of Greiser and the final solution, because he does become the sort of initiator of the final solution. And Many people know Greiser primarily in that role. If you read most you know, most books about the Holocaust, there will be a line that um, in December of 1941, Arthur Greiser began or initiated the mass gassings of Jews um, in the Vatigao. It was the first place where that actually took place. Uh-huh. So um, what's particularly interesting about what Greiser does with the Jews is he sort of has a dual policy. The dual policy is that those Jews who um, can't work quote-unquote, they um, are soon eliminated, or, you know, murdered, it's a Nazi euphemism, and um, Hitler, uh, Greiser appears to get an explicit um, approval from Himmler to begin that mass murder of Jews. On the other hand, Greiser also has a very developed program for Jews to actually engage in labor, and what are they doing? They're actually doing Germanization projects. And so oh. what you have is these Jews being exploited, but they're being exploited in order to improve the infrastructure of the Vatiga in order to make that region look German. So in a sense, you needed the Jews in order to make the region German. The other thing Reiser, of course, does is he expropriates all the Jews, um, of all their possessions. Um, all of that money ends up in bank accounts that are under his personal direction. And again, Greiser uses money from um, the expropriated Jews in order to sort of fund his various infrastructural projects. So what I've always found so intriguing is is the way the sort of, you know, bringing in of ethnic German resettlers, the removal of poles, the use of Jews either... in death through their expropriated funds, or in life through um, their exploitation of their labor, that all these projects—it's it's one big interconnected project to Germanize the Vatiga. And uh-huh. that's what's really striking to me is that this is an overarching—it's an overarching plan for how the Nazis are going to make a region German that had not been German. Uh-huh. And it goes to you know the point that the Nazis were. More about just the final solution. They uh-huh. really wanted to demographically reorder all of East Central Europe, and the Vitebsk is the place where this mostly took place. Or it was the place where it, it um, saw the greatest radicalization of the policy. Not only the final solution, but also all these other um, projects uh-huh. to make the area German.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found very interesting in the book was <clears throat> the degree to which, um, although there was a kind of general plan that Uh, People like Greiser and also Frank, who was the head of the government general and a little bit to the east of there, uh, and also also Foster himself, uh, and I would include Göring here, had to adapt to uh, things that came both from within the administration and also from on high. And I'm particularly thinking of the resettlement of these Baltic Germans um, and and the way in which they uh, tried to deal with that because it – these things weren't really thought through. So for, just to give you an example, and I kind of want to hear you talk a little bit about this. So it's decided that all these Baltic Germans are going to be moved into uh, um, um, the Varthagau. The and to make space for them, they're going to remove all these poles. Where are the poles going to go?
1: So where are the Poles going to go? The Poles, um, as much as possible, they are deported eastwards, so um, several hundred thousand of them are deported eastwards. But then, starting at sort of late 1940, early 1941, all those trains that were bringing Poles to the government general are now bringing German soldiers eastwards. So it becomes much harder to transport Poles eastwards, um, and so there's actually a stop in the deportations. However, as the Germans rev up their military machine, they're sending a lot of German soldiers eastwards as well as westwards. And so what they do is they deport a lot of Poles to Germany proper in order to do forced labor or uh-huh. essentially slave labor in Germany. Uh-huh. So that's where they go. And in the end, Greiser um, manages to get rid of about 700,000 Poles, uh-huh. either by sending them eastwards or westwards. So he has quite a bit of demographic success by the end of his time in the Wattigau, there roughly twenty five percent of the population is german um, but that involved an enormous amount of dislocation, an enormous amount of murder um you know enormous amount of very nasty policy, and yet only 25% of his region was German.
0: Uh Yeah, I mean, in a book that I like very much by Christopher Browning about, um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, it's something called The Origins of the Final Solution or something. He, uh, if I recall, and I haven't read this book for a couple of years, he really focuses on this decision. And and says that it's right at this moment that it's it's decided to pursue a kind of more radical course. Because even at this time, if I recall correctly, and you'll please correct me, Mm -hmm. there were still musings about Africa for the Jews and other kind of things like this that we kind of forget. Can you speak to that a little
1: bit? Okay, so there's quite a bit of discussion about, you know, when did Hitler actually decide on the final solution and particularly the final solution of the Western European Jews? So pretty early on, you know, as soon as the Soviet invasion um, takes place, the Nazis are in Eastern Europe, they're in, you know, Belorussia and Ukraine and places like that. In the summer of 1941, they are already murdering entire communities of Jews. But that is pretty far eastwards. Um, So it's also, though, in that same summer that it appears that Greiser and others in the Vatiga are thinking oh my god, we have all these demographic pressures, we've got all these Jews in the ghetto, we don't know where we're going to be able to send them, we want to bring in all those ethnic German resettlers, many of them are there, but they're in camps, what are we going to do with them? We've got way too many Poles, what are we going to do with them? And so there sort of emerges um, a sort of improvised solutions. And what's striking here is that there's a lot of role for initiative of these individual regional leaders. And so, Greiser decides to really um, sort of take the bull by the horns and he decides that he's going to initiate, you know, some of this really radical demographic reordering. So when in September of nineteen forty one, Himmler kapels him and says, I'm going to send sixty thousand Jews to the Wuch Ghetto, the Lietzmansteck ghetto as it was called during this period, um Greiser says ah, that's a problem, that's too many people. He manages to negotiate Himmler down to 20,000 Jews from Western Europe, but there also is this agreement, unspoken, it appears, or certainly not written down, that Greiser will be able to um, get rid of another 100,000 Jews. And so that's how this project begins of the gasings. very early then, right after that, October, November of 1941, um... Security officials are looking for a place where the Jews of the Vatigao can be murdered. Um, They settle on this fort um, or sort of mansion called Kelmno, um, Uh which is not so far from lutzmann And already in December of 1941, the mass gassings begin. Um, In this situation, there are three gas vans that um, prisoners are put into, and then the gas vans are driven around, but the carbon monoxide is going inside the van um, rather than outside. And so that's how those Jews are murdered. And about 160,000 Jews are murdered in Kelmna, so a lot um, uh-huh. of individuals murdered in this way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I want to emphasize also that um, you know, Greiser, because he had all these personal problems in the Nazi regime, he's very eager to show that he can be a real Nazi. And I think part of the reason why he adopts this fairly radical course is because he wants to show... Finally, he can do it. He can be a Nazi with the best of them. And so I think all of these sort of biographical factors lead up to the radicalization of his policies. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, again, that uh, that Browning points out in a lot of his work is that the, the, the legal issues involved in um, both relocating or, or um, resettling people and in murdering them uh, were, were often thought about a little bit more seriously than we would, uh, than we would, we would imagine uh, the, the Nazis have thought about them. Was this true in the Varthigau as well? I mean, people will know about the Wannsee Conference, which largely deals with
1: um, So it's true in the sense um, the Warthagau is, although it is technically a, a next to the Third Reich, it is technically part of the Third Reich, there is still a different sort of legal system in place. And largely what the legal system is, is Greiser rules by decree. And this is on purpose. Um, Martin Bormann, who's a um, you know, very close advisor of Hitler's, is very eager in the eastern areas to secure sort of free play for the Nazis so that they can kind of carry out their projects. And um, there's a lot of opposition to this in the Berlin ministry. So, many Berlin ministries, particularly the Interior Ministry, but also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Ecclesiastical Affairs, those ministries are very upset that people like Greiser are just issuing decrees about matters that they believe they should have um, legal rights over. And one of the things that Greiser does so successfully is that he basically manages to just shove out all of the Reich um, bureaucrats in the sense that those Reich ministries don't have a say in the Vatiga. And eventually Greiser gets Hitler's approval for this. So um, fairly early on, you know, in 1941 or so, Greiser is pretty much in complete control to do as he wishes in these areas. Mm -hmm. There are legal stipulations in place. Um... But they are, for example, in 1940, Polish and Jewish property is simply expropriated. So no Poles actually own property other than, I believe, a thousand marks of personal property. Uh-huh. And the same thing the Jews, they are just expropriated by a law of September 1940. So in some cases, there's sort of a guise of legality, but it's completely arbitrary law.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, no, that, I think that that's very... It's really very interesting. It, it seems to me that a lot of this was sort of decided on an ad hoc basis. But you mentioned Hitler, and one of the fascinating things I think about your book is that uh, here we have a good example of someone who was a, um, a, a really a kind of a top Nazi and a perpetrator in The Final Solution and also all this ethnic cleansing of Poles. But he wasn't close to Hitler, was he?
1: He wasn't, and that was um, a source of great dismay for Greiser. Greiser wanted nothing more than to be close buddies with Hitler, and it just didn't happen. And it was very frustrating for him and so again it was another one of these sort of frustrations that he had um, really for years and he just could never get close to hitler hitler already had his set group of friends and that was um, a challenge for greiser what greiser did was that he then fostered relations with other top level nazis So another reason why Greiser becomes at the sort of forefront of the demographic reordering of um, Nazi Germany is that he becomes good buddies with Himmler. Um, Himmler frequently comes to Posen. Himmler really sort of develops a liking for Greiser, Greiser for Himmler likewise. Um, And so Greiser becomes sort of uh, Himmler's henchman, if you Uh like, in the eastern areas. And again, it's another reflection of the sort of poor relationship that he has with Hitler.
0: Yeah, so so Himmler is very important in allowing... Greiser to um, to do the things that he does. Absolutely, he's his patron. Yeah, and that, yeah, that was important. Absolutely. And again, because I, I'm kind of speaking about the or uh, uh, referencing the, this notion that, that you know we think of these totalitarian regimes as kind of top down and looking like pyramids and so on and so forth, but actually they were. I think in your book shows this very well that they were cr- cross cut by all kinds of um, uh, of personal rivalries and also uh, institutional overlap and and really just confusion.
1: Absolutely, and it also it goes to, speaks to the importance of persons in this regime, In yeah. you know, totalitarian regimes, persons, you know, the cogs in the machines, right? The machines were smoothly functioning. That is not the Nazi regime at all. Yeah. What is striking about the Greiser story is how much personal influence he has, how much he can change in his little area, how much personal power he has, yeah. and how different his policies are than, say, the policies of other Eastern leaders uh-huh. who are in many ways not nearly as radical. They yeah. have different takes. They have different projects. Um, so it's striking how in such a totalitarian regime, if you want to call it that, yeah, sure, yes. um, there are, there's, there's so much room for individual maneuver, yeah. and that that maneuvering makes a difference. It makes a difference in the lives of the victims. Yeah, yeah, it really yeah. does.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a, that's, a, that's a fascinating thing, uh, that, that we, we tend to think about these regimes when we use the word totalitarian, and I don't mind it particularly, uh, using this kind of machine-like metaphor. But then you actually get into the personal lives of these people and their friends and their aspirations and their loves and their foibles, and it's not uh, like a cog in a machine at all.
1: Not at all. It's no.
0: really very complicated to right. understand it, and I think anybody that's ever sat in a faculty meeting or a board meeting <laughs> knows that. <laughs> that it just doesn't. You know, you can look at that organizational chart all day long, but it doesn't really bear very much. Uh, sort of, it, it doesn't reflect reality. Right. Um, very good point. So, so uh, uh, the the. Um, the end is nigh. Uh, the, the, the Soviets are on the way. The war is lost. What does Greiser do?
1: So poor Greiser. Um, all right, so in 1945, the Soviets are coming. They're attacking the Vatigao, and um, Greiser gets a message from Bormann telling him to flee the Vatigao. And Greiser, because um, at some level he really is a good Nazi, he follows Bormann's orders. But he immediately, when he gets to Berlin, he's essentially slapped in the face for um, Uh, fleeing from the Vatigao before the Soviets are actually there. And so Greiser then becomes this image of this cowardly Nazi who's abandoned his post before he absolutely had to. And this is um, just devastating for Greiser that at the end, for everything that he's done for the Nazi movement, this is sort of how he's perceived as this great coward who left his post too early. Um, Greiser spends the last months of the Nazi regime trying to curry favor with Hitler, trying to speak with Himmler. He does actually meet with Himmler, but he's never able to see Hitler. So the last months of the Nazi regime are just awful for him because he's trying to reestablish his Nazi bona fides. Or um, Then, um, Greiser, at the end of the war in 1945, he's arrested by the Americans. Um, he spends some time in um, internment camps in western Germany, and in March of 1946, he's extradited to the Poles. There had been various agreements whereby perpetrators who had um, perpetrated crimes that were specific to a particular region would be extradited to that region or to that country and put on trial there. Greiser's trial took place in um, July of 1946, and it is a very interesting event. Um, It was the first of seven major war crimes tribunals held by the Poles, but it was also interesting because the Poles were very aware of what was going on in Nuremberg, and they sort of tried to structure their trial around the Nuremberg charges while also using Polish law. And this was not altogether a happy fit, but what it meant was that Greiser was charged with some of the same crimes as the um, criminals at Nuremberg. So he was charged, for example, with... um, uh um what's a violating the peace or crimes against the right. peace
0: crimes, against, the peace, crimes yeah.
1: against war um and war crimes although it wasn't quite um it wasn't quite and um phrased as War crimes or crimes against humanity. Uh-huh. Now, Greiser's trial ended before the Nuremberg trials ended, and so Greiser actually was the first person ever convicted of crimes against the peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, at some level, is sort of ironic because he did relatively little to bring on the Second World War in Danzig. He was not engaged in a Nazi conspiracy there, really, to you know, be um, to uh, have crimes against the peace. But that is what he was charged with and um, sentenced. Um, so that's an interesting sort of f- fact about Greiser, just that he was tried according to Nuremberg charges. That all of this was happening behind the Iron Curtain. Greiser's trial was actually a reasonably fair trial, and the trial documents that are all in Warsaw are incredibly important for historians mm-hmm. writing about him. So the polls did a fabulous job of collecting documents, mm-hmm. and they were right. I mean, everything that you know they charged Greiser with, short of the crimes <laughs> against the peace, um, they really documented well. Mm-hmm. Greiser was um, sentenced to death. He um, tried to get clemency from the new Polish leader, um, Beirut. He also made an interesting um, intervention with the Pope. Um, The Pope actually said, oh, please do um, spare Greiser, which is odd because Greiser had had militantly anti-Catholic policies in the Vatigo, but Mm -hmm. the Pope went along with that. And um, Poles weren't interested. They were furious at the Pope, and they hanged him um, July 21st, 1946. Uh-huh. This was a big hanging. There were about 15,000 people at the hanging. There are you know, a lot of pictures of the hanging. You can just see a sea of people uh-huh. watching Greiser being hanged. Uh-huh. Um, and that was that. Yeah.
0: What uh, kind of defense did he mount? Did he try to defend himself?
1: He tried to defend himself, but he did say, it was, you know, I was just taking orders. Um, uh-huh. I was actually against what the Nazis were doing. It was completely unbelievable. And it was, it was, you know, and the polls had so many good documents. And so Greiser just appeared to be a fool, really, in front of the, uh, yeah. front of the jury yeah. and in front of the audience that was listening to this trial. A very, very pathetic defense. Yeah. It seems that Greiser was a completely broken man by that point. Uh-huh. Um, he'd sort of lost everything.
0: So let me ask a, a, what may seem like a kind of a strange question, and, and that is uh, how is uh, Greiser thought of now by his family members? And I ask that since you talked to a lot of them, and I'm not talking just about those that uh, knew him, but those that didn't know him. What is his, what is his image in the family?
1: So the image in the family is that his, I met his daughter, obviously, two times, and the first, very first thing she said to me was, you're going to write about the good my father did, right? So I asked her, well, what was the good that your father did? And she said, well, he helped the Jews leave Danzig. So I already talked about that. That's her perception, and she has done everything. This is his daughter. She has done everything to not learn about what her father did. Yeah. She is the one person who doesn't want to recognize you know within the greiser family she 's the one person who doesn 't want to recognize the crimes that her father committed when I sent her the book um, when it was finally published she um can 't read English, but she did write back and said you know i 'm very sorry that this book exists about my father i 'm sort of dismayed by that yeah. and that 's hard i mean yeah. you know I feel badly about that. Um, all the other, the great niece, the um, niece that I spoke with, they all understand what Reiser did, and they're mostly just interested. They want to know, what did this guy do? Yeah. Um, so, you know, very different reactions. It's the daughter that has the hardest time with it. And as she, you know, would always say, um, you know, all through my childhood, I guess, Greiser died when she was 14, but, you know, sort of late adolescence, my fondest dream was always that my father would come knocking at the door and that he'd be there and oh. I'd see him again. And she had very fond memories of her father. Greiser seems to have been a doting father, um, even though this woman lived with her mother. So Greiser's first wife um, during the entire period, she always went to Posen every summer for her long summer vacation. Uh-huh. So she had a lot of memories of her father. Uh huh. No, um, yeah,
0: yeah. That's that's touching, actually. I, yeah. Yeah, it's really yeah. I'm, I, I don't have any sympathy for Greiser, but. But <laughs> for the daughter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I really do. Yeah, that's 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 sad. Uh, so anyway, thank you very much for being on the show. It's a really terrific book. We've taken up a lot of your time, and and I really want to recommend people go out and read this book. It's a meticulously researched. It's extraordinarily well written, and it tells a fascinating and important story, uh, for really anybody interested in not only Nazi Germany, as I said, but also. Uh, kind of um, the politics and structure of all uh, regimes of this type. I want to call them totalitarian. I understand that's a, a bit of a controversial thing to say, I suppose. But nonetheless, I think it really sheds a lot of light on, on this important topic. Let me uh, ask you to close the interview in a way we previously agreed, and that is by naming a couple of books that uh, you think our listeners should read on this topic. This being, uh, you know, Nazi activities. Um, in the occupied territories, or the lives of important Nazis—that kind of thing.
1: Wow, that's a hard. Question. I know it is. I'm sorry. St- <laughs> you know, in some ways, I think Timothy Snyder's Bloodlands is really good in terms of putting the Greiser story in a much broader framework of what happens in Eastern Europe between uh-huh. sort of the um, between Hitler and Stalin. So his new book—it's called Bloodlands. So I think that's you know valuable, and it's interesting to see you know the regional examples sort of fitting into that broader uh-huh. um, issue. Yeah. After that, um, you know, there are you know, there are not that many books about perpetrators in English. In the end, there are a lot of sort of German biographies that are very dense sort of uh-huh. monograph like things. Um, you know, I like a lot of memoirs dealing with this era. I mean, a book that, that's just fabulous is a book called Nine Lives about um Polish Ukrainian ethnic cleansing. It's not uh-huh. exactly about this period. It happens in this period, but you know, really sort of dramatic, sort of what happens in this area, yeah. the dramatic upheavals that take place. Um, it's just, it's an incredible history, and the lives that people led are just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Breiser himself personally shaped the lives yeah. that so many people led in that area, and obviously shaped them for the worse. But The stories are incredible.
0: Uh-huh. Well, yeah, those are good suggestions. Um, we've had Tim Schneider on the show, and uh, he will be appearing on um, what some of the listeners may know as the New Books Network um, a little bit later. Uh, I know that he's arranged an interview with one of the channels in that network, and I'll be talking a little bit about that, as I say, at a, at a, at a later point in uh, in the show. But right now I just want to thank Catherine for being on the show. We've been talking to Catherine yeah. Epstein about model Nazi Arthur Greiser and the occupation of Western Poland. Kath, Catherine, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Katherine Epstein about her new book, Model Nazi, Arthur Greiser, and the Occupation of Western Poland. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.